good to be here with everybody this evening. If, um, good to see you all. If I look a little disheveled or my children look a little disheveled, it's because we are 24 hours out from Emily being in Arizona. And so you can imagine what it will look like on Tuesday night when she gets home. It's going to be good. So uh, glad to be here together. Um, good to see your faces. Um, glad to be together in a week where we get to come together in a special way and be God's people and orient our focus upon Jesus as a family. And so that is our intent this evening. That's what we're hoping to do, as we always do, week in and week out. We're doing that through song like we just did in worshiping Him through song, and then we're going to do that through um, being under His Word. And so we're continuing our sermon series in Acts, um, which we've entitled, Your Kingdom Come. If you've missed any of the sermons over the last several weeks, I would encourage you to jump on Spotify and listen to them. Um, We don't get any kickbacks for Spotify, although we seem to use it a lot as a church, so that's all good, right? So it's good to have technology. Trust that you'll be edified in that way, listening to it um, in the car or as you're working out or whatever it would be. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 12 and go ahead and turn there with me. And as you get there, we're going to do a quick and fast recap to set the stage for the events that we're going to look at this evening. Over the last several chapters of Acts, the story's been moving from the advancement of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem to the advancement of that same kingdom because it's the same king in other places, in Judea, in Samaria, and even expanding its way to include Gentiles. God used the odd means of persecution to disperse His bride, the church there in Jerusalem, sending His people out. And as they went, they took the gospel with them. And the pattern that we've seen in the book of Acts is as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and as the Spirit goes before and draws and convicts people of sin and righteousness, individuals repent and believe and are baptized into the forever family of God. Sinners, now saints. Enemies, now family. And last week, we saw the spread of that kingdom through the gospel expanding into a place called Antioch, some several hundred miles north and west of Jerusalem where there was no gospel presence and therefore no followers of Jesus Christ. But God is on the move expanding His kingdom there. And through proclamation and the movement of the Spirit, we saw that His kingdom is expanding by gospel conversion. And as individuals repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that life transformation is manifested by evidences of grace and expressions of grace that people inside and outside the camp of of believers see. Two important characters to the story of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, go and spend significant time teaching the church and aiding in the work of the Lord there in Antioch. The first vivid picture of the body life of believers outside of Jerusalem. 
parallel in many ways to the same expressions of the church that is alive and well in Jerusalem. It's there in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were, uh, were first called Christians, more than likely a name given by individuals outside the church to followers of Jesus. And the kingdom is here, and it is reclaiming territory one lost soul at a time. Meanwhile, back on the farm, as it were, the events of Acts chapter 12 are unfolding all the way back in Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, let's grab a hold, and we're going to read through the first 20 verses and look at that this evening. Follow along as I, as I read. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, and he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to him, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance 
amongst the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let's pray. God, you are great and greatly to be praised and By your kindness, you have given to us your word that you would reveal yourself to us. By your kindness, you've given your spirit so that we might be drawn to you and be made new. So God, as we come um, here this evening looking upon this text, we want to make much of you this evening. That we would be in awe of what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will continue through broken, sin-stained people like us. Because you have washed us clean by the blood of your Son, Jesus. So with great anticipation and confidence we come before your throne this evening and every day because your mercies are new your grace is sufficient Lord have your way with us this evening may your spirit go forth in power and accomplish forth your purposes we love you in your name we pray amen When's the last time you were uncertain? Not just a little perplexed or even confused or unsure of a decision. But after lots of consideration, lots of thought, and even good counsel, maybe you're like me and you pulled out the good old pro and cons list. And you started putting items into one column or the other. You still found yourself not able to find the correct answer. Oxford language defines uncertain as not able to be relied on, not known or definite, and not completely confident or sure. When's the last time you felt that way? not completely confident or sure. Maybe you feel that way right now around your job. Maybe you feel that way about where you are going to send your kids to school, your retirement plan, what you ought to do or not do. Maybe you should retire now or later. If you should move or not move, what kind of healthcare decisions you ought to explore or not explore. Come to think of it, life is full of uncertain plans. Thinking about that question for myself, I've made hundreds of decisions each day 
that when it really comes down to it, they all are uncertain at best. And there are hundreds of reasons for that. My lack of understanding could be one of them. The information that I'm given to make a decision is either biased or incorrect. My perspective and the way that I think about certain things isn't correct, and therefore I make mistakes. Maybe I'm arrogant to my lack of understanding, and therefore I put too much confidence in my assessment. There are lots of examples of my uncertainty. But one that I think hits home closest to my own heart, for me and my family, is the idea of COVID-19 most recently. In the midst of this particular arena, what do you do? What do you not do? How should you respond? What is acting in wisdom and what is acting in fear? Over the last two years, my thought on COVID-19 is that it has been clouded with uncertainty. And that uncertainty, for me, stems from questions surrounding the truth about this disease. How dangerous is it? How contagious is it? What should I do if I get it? What can we do to help keep it from spreading? Are we both being told the truth about what it is and what we ought to be doing to help ourselves and others get through this? Maybe as time moves on and as history unfolds, we'll get a better understanding. But for now, I'm uncertain. And that principally comes from my distrust of the motives and the actions of individuals that are speaking with authority on this particular topic. So how does uncertainty, not specifically uncertainty around COVID-19, but just uncertainty at large intersect with Acts chapter 12? Unlike most of the things in this world, claiming to be certain and trustworthy Acts chapter 12 shows us that only the things of God are certain. And so the sermon title for this evening is simply this, it's certain hope, certain hope. And as we walk through these verses, we're going to be nudged and pushed a little bit, I think. And as we are going to walk up against some interesting events we have to understand them in the context of God's greater character and overarching purposes. So with that said, let's get to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Like other places in the book of Acts, unforeseen circumstances seem to disrupt the spread of God's plan to reach people through the gospel. Seem is the important word there. On face value, one may read these events and be concerned that God's eternal plan could be in jeopardy as not one, but two of his apostles have either been put to death or are now imprisoned. 
We're told that James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, was put to death by the sword through the command of a guy named Herod Agrippa. And after seeing how it pleased the Jews there in Jerusalem, Herod went after Peter and was successful in capturing him. Two different times in the text we're told of the motivation of Herod Agrippa and what he does. It's there in verse 3. He did it to gain favor with the Jews. And second, we're told that he was unwilling to execute Peter during the Passover meal because it might upset the Jews. At which point, afterwards, he would put Peter on trial and assumedly execute him. And as we step back and we consider these events so far, there's two points that I want to connect to the idea of certainty. First is the question, who is directing the story? And second, what are the motivations? I think it's reasonable at this point in verse 3 of Acts chapter 12 to stop and to state the obvious. It's not looking very good for the church in Jerusalem. Even knowing the end of the story that we just read, that Peter gets released, the reality is, is James has already been executed and Peter nonetheless is imprisoned. And I think that this nudges us a little bit. And I think the natural response as circumstances in life that don't go our way, we're left with wondering why. And if we're honest, there are certain circumstances that are so impactful to our lives that it can lead us to question one of three large characteristics of who God is. The first one is this. Is God really in control? The second is does He really love you? Not the thought of you, not humanity at large, but does he love you, the person? And third and last, is he really good? Someone showed me this uh, triangle probably about a decade ago. It's called the Triangle of Trust. God's control, His love for you, and He's good. And as we overlap those concepts onto Acts chapter 12, our natural tendencies outside the Spirit of God is to say, not quite is God in control of all these things. Actually, King Agrippa is. He's the one 
in the text at face value who is determining and executing his plan as he sees fit. And King Agrippa's motivation is not for other people's good or because he loves you, but it is motivated by his lust for power and influence. That's what we're told in verse 3. He did these things probably for many reasons, but one of which was to improve his status with the Jews he was ruling. See, unlike Herod, whose power is limited to that which was given to him by the state of Rome, our God's power and dominion is self-subscribed, and it is self-containing. He does what he wishes. Job chapter 42, verse 2, familiar with the story of Job, after all the events that happen into Job's life, Job says this to God in verse 2 of chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, as God is being compared to all these other man-made gods, we are told that our God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. That is what we mean when we say that our God is sovereign, that he is in control. That nothing can stop our God's purposes. He is in control and he's able to bring them about. And he is not only in complete control, but unlike Herod, whose motivations are impure, our God uses his sovereignty for our good and for his glory. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. In the wind-blown circumstances of life, fighting to be reminded of these three truths about our God brings certainty in uncertain times. Now what follows in verses 5 through 20 is a biblical example of walking in certainty of hope that both Peter and God's people show both in ways that are a little more covert than you might think. So let's take a closer look. First, let's look at Peter himself, and then we will look at the church as a whole. Peter finds himself in maximum security prison situation. Maybe because word is spread that this guy's escaped from prison before. 
We know a little bit about that. Or because the reality that Rome was involved, we don't really know. But regardless, Peter is chained on each arm to another Roman soldier. His right arm is hooked to some guy's other arm. His left arm is hooked to some other guy's left arm, maybe his feet. And then there are two guards standing at a door or multiple doors, we don't really know, and tradition tells us that this four-man squad would be rotated every three hours or so during the night to stay fresh and keep a close eye on their prisoner so that they don't fall asleep. And yet it seems as though as everyone is asleep. Peter is fast asleep. So much so that the light that shone in his cell didn't wake him. Instead, the angel of the Lord had to strike him and say, rise, get on your feet. Now, some commentators articulate that Peter's sleeping on the night before his execution is noteworthy, possibly pointing to Peter's belief that he would be rescued. Similar to his, the time before, the beginning of Acts. It's possible. We don't know. Maybe one, God will t- one day God will tell us. But today we don't really know. Is Peter expecting rescue? What we do know is that Peter's assurance and certainty was not founded in his circumstance. In winning some favor in the eyes of Herod Agrippa, or some changed opinion of the Jewish leaders to release him. Instead, it was anchored into the only source of true and steadfast hope, that regardless of this life's outcome, because Peter had placed his faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection for his sin before God, Peter's security was certain. Similarly to the circumstances that Peter finds himself in right now, there are no other means, no other person, not even Peter himself, could save himself from that bondage. But God. God shows up, releases the chains, and sets the captive free. See, Peter had certainty in that for his soul before his maker, probably wishing to be physically free, like who could blame him, right? But notice, he isn't really even expecting to be rescued from prison. Because when it happens, he thinks it's a vision. At least initially. I believe that that gives significant insight as to what Peter's certainty and hope was really in. Peter's certainty, his hope, 
was anchored in the truths that God is in control of his life, that God loved him, and that God is working out all of these things for his ultimate good, doing all of that through the face of Jesus Christ. Let's consider quickly now the church as a whole. Verse 5 tells us, in the midst of a bad circumstance, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Later, when Peter shows up at the house of Mary, they are still praying. There's a lot of good side trails that we could go down here, all surrounding the idea of prayer, the power of prayer, the way that prayer works with God being sovereign, all good topics to look at for the purpose of this evening's sermon. I want to highlight just one significant thing. What do you think the church was praying for? The text tells us, for him. So, we know that they are bringing supplication to God on behalf of Peter. And my mind asks the question, what kinds of requests do you think that they are asking for? Long and short, we don't know. Because <laughs> I wasn't there. Neither were you. What we do know is that in the midst of suffering and hardship, the people of God came together and in unity beseeched the Lord on behalf of Peter. That's their response. And I'm going to argue that it wasn't principally for his release. Now, I'm not going to say that that wasn't part of their prayer or even on their minds and their hearts that they um, wanted him to be freed. But I'm going to argue that the chief tone of their prayers must have been for other things. Otherwise, they wouldn't have told the servant girl that she's going crazy when their prayers are answered. Now, why does all that matter? When the circumstances of life bring suffering, hardship, and even death, The certainty of God's people isn't found ultimately in anything else other than being His. It doesn't mean we ought not desire and even pray for God's kindness to remedy suffering, cure illness, provide amazing grace and mercy to circumstances that are hard and burdensome. My prayer is that we would be a church that would bear burdens well with each other.
and that we would not lose sight of our certain and eternal hope that regardless of what this life brings, if you're a follower of Jesus, let us remind one another of God's control, His goodness, and His love for His people. And let that fan into flame certainty in the midst of uncertain times. My prayer for us as we close is that our sure and eternal hope that is anchored behind the curtain would give rise to worship and dependence as we see and acknowledge that all of the things in life, they all promise hope. They all promise certainty. They all promise rest. They all promise joy. And none of them are lasting. But we can find lasting certainty in the face of King Jesus. Amen? Amen.